0: Amen. Well, thank you, Darren, for reading it. The, the, this uh, wonderful passage from Luke for us. So just as an introduction, we're carrying on through our, our series in Luke. And here, it's a bit of a... It stops from where we've been talking before. A little bit, I would think, about the money worries and the, and the lost and everything like this. And it comes into a concentrated series of teachings from Jesus to his disciples. And as we realize, he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and his ultimate death on the cross. So these teachings are getting more specified, more specific, and they come in in three blocks here, as you can see if you've got the NIV, sin, faith, duty. But I think in this passage, we're also going to see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, or fulfilling the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. So first of all, I'd just like to read the very start of Hebrews. Who wouldn't want to read that? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. And it's true, Jesus does fulfill the ultimate prophet, I suppose he comes in as being. And A way we can tell that perhaps is when the prophets of old spoke, they would speak and before or after they would say, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord has to say. But whenever Jesus speaks, there's none of that beforehand. He just speaks as it is. And the response to him as he's speaking is amazement or from the Pharisees, who is this? He's speaking with such authority. He's speaking as though he's got authority of the Lord. Well, he is the Lord. It is the Lord speaking. Jesus is fulfilling this as he speaks to us. So when we, as we read through these passages, I want us to see that Jesus is the Lord. We call him Lord, and so are we willing to obey him as Lord? Because there are some commands at the start of this passage that he does say we must obey. So I'm, I'm going to take us through pretty much verse by verse to start off with anyway. And the first block is on, on sin. So let me read again to you verses 1 and 2. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble or to sin are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. So what is a stumbling block or a sin? How, how, how can we think of it here? And remember, he's speaking as a prophet. These are going to come. These must come. These will come. Well, why? Because it ultimately boils down to our human sinful nature. We're in Adam, we are all sinful. And through humanity, sins will come. And snares and traps to lead people down the path of sin will come. And this is like a prophecy in a way, because it's in total opposition to the humanist position of our age, who says, no, humanity will indeed get stronger and better and better and better. But Jesus says, no. No, 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 no. We will not make ourselves good, ultimately ourselves. Sins are going to come because you are a sinful people. We are all sinners. And now there is a story that's told about uh, an old man on his deathbed who was visited by, by a preacher or by a, a reverend of his, and he was really worried, really worried on his deathbed. And uh, the preacher, or the, the reverend, came to him and said, well, what's, what's the matter? Why are you so upset? You're going to meet your maker? And he said, well, when I was a young boy, I lived on a crossroads. And what I did, there was a signpost here pointing... To different places, and during the night I switched the crossroads around. And I just so worried and so upset about how many people I sent down the wrong path, the wrong way. And it's true, and this is what sin or the stumbling blocks that Jesus is talking to here. That's what people that's what's happening. And he's talking to us here as well. He's talking to his disciples. Are we putting down stumbling blocks? turning that pathway, sending people down the wrong way by allowing sin. <coughs> uh, I'm a HGV driver, as, as normal, and you see TV programs on the news where there have been these big, great, big Arctic drivers following their satnav, following the wrong path. And they continue to follow it and continue to follow it and continue to follow it. Until they get to, they go in so far down the wrong way, they can't go back. They're stuck. There's no way of getting them back. They cause mayhem in a village and have to be craned out. And is that true of us? Are we sending people down the wrong way? We only need to send them down one wrong path. And who knows how far they will go in the wrong direction. Will they end up being stuck with no return? No return. Listen to the second part of verse 1 again. But woe, Jesus says, to anyone through whom they come. Now, whenever Jesus uses woe as a word, it's a very, very, very strong word that Jesus uses it. What he uses it, he uses it when he's talking about unrepentant towns in Matthew. And he, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Where are those cities or where are those towns now? They do not exist. When Jesus says, woe, it's a very strong condemnation on on people. And he's saying here, woe to anyone through whom these stumbling blocks come. In fact, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones lower in faith to ourselves, lesser in spiritual maturity to stumble. So it would be better to have instant, uncertain, and horrible death than to lead one person down the wrong way and have these sins that you've committed to do this piling up upon you. And we can think of it in this way. It would be lovely to think when Jesus says, woe to anyone through whom they they come, When you think of Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, pornographers, the leaders of ISIS who bring in innocent. It's great and we can stand with Jesus and we can say, yes, woe to those people. Woe to those people who have caused these little ones to stumble and bring them and point them in the wrong direction. But look at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples. Jesus is, is speaking as well to us, to his followers with this. And we can see that as we, begin, as we jump into verse 3. So watch yourselves. So watch yourselves. Or pay attention to yourselves, it says in the ESV version. I mean, stay alert. Be on guard at all times. So how could we be leading our fellow brothers and sisters lower in the faith or lower in spiritual maturity? How could we be doing this? Well, by sinning ourselves. And there's two ways we do this. There's sins of commission, sins that we do, or sins of omission, things that we don't do, that we're not doing. And just a few examples, perhaps. As we heard earlier on in Luke, are we living materialistic lives and not using that wealth to build up God, to live out God's social, the way God's kingdom would work out, socially, socially? Are we saying things we shouldn't in amongst a crowd? Are we doing things we shouldn't in amongst a crowd that other people are seeing and thinking, well, if it's alright for him, he's a committed Christian, it's alright for me. Or the sins of omission, like I said, sins that, things that we're not doing. Are we not saying things and therefore condoning actions? Are we seeing somebody else sinning and not saying something? Are we not doing things to actively prevent people from sinning? Thinking of Are we not putting filters on our children's internet? Are we allowing our children to watch films that when they're 10 years old, yeah, that's okay, you watch at 12. When they're 12, yeah, you watch at 15, no problem. Are there things we could be doing to prevent this? Or are we not doing things that we could be doing? And Jesus here, in verses 3 and 4, he gives us a plan to follow to stop this. To stop this happening in our lives. And it's rebuke. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. There's no act there. You must forgive them where it says you will forgive them. Now, this is pretty straightforward, obviously. Now we think we may think we get a, we've got a bit of a get-out clause here because it says, if your brothers or sisters sin against you, but who are we? Who are we? We are the body of Christ. If a brother or sister sins, they are sinning against the body of Christ. They are sinning against us. There's no get-out clause here. If you see a brother or sister sinning, we are to rebuke them. So if we have to rebuke, perhaps we could spend a few moments looking at some scripture that helps us to find out exactly what rebuke is, where's the motive behind it, and how we're to do it, perhaps. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm reading the New Living Translation here, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So as we rebuke people, we don't rebuke people because they're perhaps doing wrong in our, in our sight. We go to Scripture. Are they doing wrong in God's sight? Are they sinning against God? And how do we do it? Well, in Matthew 18, which is a parallel teaching to this, this uh, verse, these uh, passages in Luke, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as enemies of God. So there's no get out clause there. If you see your brother or sister sinning, you don't go directly to the elders or the leaders and say, no, 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 I've seen this guy sinning, this sister sinning. No, you're to do it yourself. The onus is on you. Go to them yourself. In Revelation 3.19, we see the motive behind it. When Jesus is rebuking the church of Laodicea, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's through love we need to do this. Through love. He doesn't want anybody lost. We're to rebuke to bring them back to God. Through love. We want them back. And why? Well, there's a wonderful truth in James. In James 5 we read, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the end of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's a wonderful truth. So we are to follow that teaching, that command. We must and will rebuke. And perhaps we've got other feelings here. When we, read, when we read verse 4, seven times a day it says, if somebody sins against you seven times a day and repents, and that also has got to include, if they're sinning against you seven times a day, I think you've got to understand that you're rebuking them seven times a day. Who's waiting for the eighth? Is there anybody in here that you think, oh, you wait till the eighth time? I'm having you. But it's not that at all. It's not that at all because in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees had this saying, somebody who forgives a man three times a day is a perfect man. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you go way past that with God. It's unlimited forgiveness. Just look at Jesus. Look at God with us. It's unlimited forgiveness. We're mirroring God here in our Christian lives there should be unlimited forgiveness for those who repent. But they need to be told they're doing wrong in the first place to understand they need to repent. There's just one other small thing here, perhaps it's small. If we don't follow this command of rebuking and forgiveness, we cannot even pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. We cannot even say the Lord's Prayer. Pray how Jesus taught us to do if we're not following this command. So, how much rebuking is going, in, going on in Abbey at the moment? Not a lot, I'd suggest. Not that I, I'm certainly not a perfect man. You can ask my wife this. And I haven't been rebuked that often at Abbey. I have been a couple of occasions. But what I do get rebu- rebuke when I do get rebuke, is from my wife at home. And it's a picture of how we need to be living at church, isn't it? Sam's not afraid to rebuke me because we're living as family. She knows all the dirty, grittiness of my life. We need to be living in Abbey. And there's a wonderful chance here, the way we've changed community groups to be living in authentic relationships to be taking off that mask, to be living authentically, to let our dirt come to the surface so we we can be cleaned. We should be living as family. Family is willing to rebuke because they love and they want people back and they don't want people sinning against them. We should be doing the same and there's a wonderful chance in community groups to do that. I know some are already beginning to live in that relationship where they can feel open and feel as though they can bring the sin in their lives to the surface to be prayed for. Because what happens if we keep it to ourselves? We're either going to tell our friends and our family, um, yes, we'll probably get a rebuke, but we will be cleansed by that. Or we'll keep our mask on and we'll tell it to our maker when we meet him at the end. What would you rather do? And Jesus, of course, as we said, he's not commanding these sins as a great dictator but as a lover of our souls. He wants us saved. He loves us. He wants us back in relationship with himself. So what do the disciples say when they hear this command? It's pretty difficult. Lord, increase our faith. I think the commentaries can say it's a carry carry on from this, from this first uh, bit of the passage. And they're saying increase our faith. We need some more power to do this. It's a really hard teaching you're giving here. And he says, he replies by saying, well, let's check your motives for us. It sounds like a great thing. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our power to do this. But he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not how much faith you've got. It's who you've got faith in that matters. If you've got faith as small as a mustard seed in the creator of the universe, then it's not going to be so hard for you to say, mulberry Bush, up roots, and go in the sea because it's the creator of the universe Who is doing this? It's not you by your power or give me some more power so I can do that. You're coming to the creator to ask these things. So he is saying, check your motives when you're doing this. Because when you're doing things in my name, you are doing your duty as we come through to uh, up to verse 10. It's just your duty you're doing here. Remember who I am. I am the Lord. I am the king. And you, as it says in verse 10, are unworthy servants when you're doing this. You're not worthy. You haven't done anything to earn this. It's by my grace that I'm giving you this power. It's through my grace. You haven't earned anything. I've earned everything for you. Remember who I am and remember who you are. Even more simply saying, I am the Lord. You call me Lord. Now live that out. So I think we can have a a small checklist here. Are we serving with the right motives? Do we serve in the church? Because this this is called a service, by the way, so we should be here to serve. Are we serving to get thanked? Do we get a bit miffed if we don't get thanked when we're serving in many different ways, when we're setting up the chairs, when we're doing the sound, when we're serving in the kitchen? Or... Do we do it to glorify and honor our wonderful Savior, Lord and King? Is that our motive? Which begs the question, when we are serving, should other people in the congregation be thanking us for for serving? There is a way to get over this, I think. We shouldn't be thanking each other directly for serving, but what we should be doing is giving thanks and praise to God that he's worked so hard in our lives, he's worked so much in our hearts and our lives, that we want to serve him and we want to serve others because we want to mirror our Lord, self-sacrificial. Well, that takes us to verse 10, and we're going to sing a song now, and then I'm going to come back to show us in the last block that yes, he is Lord, he has commands, we should follow them, but what a wonderful Lord we have, and our hearts should melt and really want to serve this wonderful King and Lord. Thank you.